entertaining. It's all about Jesus. It's not about religion, it's about relationships. Where beginners are welcome. Where forgiveness is offered. Where hope is alive. And it's okay to not be okay. Good morning. Now, what the world needs, a little more Dr. Seuss theology. Amen. Well, um, welcome uh, to Canaan this morning. And uh, for those of you who are joining us online as well, we're, we're glad that you're here with us. And today is Right to Life Sunday, and it's also a part of the series called Glad You Asked. And um, for those of you who <clears throat> sent in questions um, for this series and also for the podcast that Daniel and I follow up with each week, one of the questions was, what does the Bible have to say about abortion? And I wish it was just that easy where we could actually just answer from the Bible, and the Bible was enough. I mean, if you're a born-again Christian, the Bible is enough, right? It's your foundation for all of your beliefs. But I think it's also important today in our culture that we engage with logic, right, and that we're able to articulate well from the scientific facts that we know about. Um, of course, all of those, we believe, actually um, bring help to the Scriptures, to those who aren't believers to maybe convince people of our arguments, but for us as believers, we want to make sure that our worldview reflects what the Bible says first as well. So we're going to look at this from a couple of different approaches this morning as we get into the scriptures. But if you do have your Bibles, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. <clears throat> There's a young lady in Southern California several years ago that had three children and she was pregnant with number four. She was still in her 20s and this child was unplanned. In fact, her husband had had a common procedure, but the procedure apparently didn't take effect. It didn't work for him. And she came up pregnant with number four. It was a shock to both of them. The family was struggling financially. But just three years prior, there was a landmark decision and this was pitched to her that she had now reproductive rights. They'd been put back into the hands of women because of the landmark decision of Roe versus Wade. Now, this young lady, mother of three, fourth on the way, had the right to choose what to do, meaning she could choose to legally terminate the child inside of her body. Now, the young husband also in his 20s, urged her to do just that. Take care of this. Go have an abortion. We can't afford this fourth child. And she was stuck because for her, she could look at those three other children out in front of her that she loved and nurtured so much, and, and she had compassion on them and love like a mother would, and so did the father. But now she had this option, and it was legal. And being super young in her faith, she wasn't quite sure what to do. What would she choose? A common question that's asked, isn't it, today in our culture? Um, that story is one of a myriad of stories that could be told of someone now in this day and age that, it, that has an unwanted or unplanned pregnancy. Many families have felt themselves in that same dilemma since January the 22nd, 1973. That's when Roe v. Wade was decided. As that somber day approaches the anniversary again, new analysis from the National Right to Life tells us this. Over 61 million babies have been aborted in the womb since 1973. These are lives that have ended through legal abortion in the last 
47 years. Now, we are always quick, even in our culture, to condemn the genocide of Hitler or the genocide of Stalin. But those pale in comparison to what we have allowed in our country now for nearly 50 years. Now, I want to tell you, this is not a fun sermon to preach, but it is a necessary sermon to preach. And you'll know why uh, at the end of this sermon, I'm going to give you some statistics that are going to probably blow your mind about those inside the church that are making really bad decisions as well. It's something we need to talk about and we need to have a biblical worldview on as Christians. Because the decision was made in January of 73, the Southern Baptist Convention, it, it urges all of the Baptist churches in America to um, come together on this day and remember the sanctity of human life, to talk about this issue and what we can do as Christians to change this world. And so in just a few days, it will be another anniversary of Roe v. Wade. It's also an opportunity for us as pastors, preachers of the gospel, to herald, listen, the forgiveness of Jesus. Because many women have made this decision, uh, maybe not even knowing all the facts, maybe they were scared, uh, in a difficult predicament, and went ahead and did this, knowing that it was legal, and they have guilt from it, and shame, and a lot of anguish. You know, our culture tells us today, well, it's your right to choose. Be free. Go do this procedure. But what they don't tell young women a lot of times is uh, the pain that they will suffer later. What they don't tell them is that 10 years later, when they see a little child at a playground playing on a swing, that they think that that could be their child as well, that they terminated years ago. What they don't tell us in the culture, because they lie to us, is the PTSD, the anxiety, the fear, the frustration that comes from that decision. And so we want to keep people from making that horrible decision and to also know that they can turn the Savior to Jesus Christ and that he is a forgiving and loving God. Isn't that great news? Amen. We as believers, I believe, should seek to have this horrible practice abolished in America. And we want to make sure that it never touches our households as Christians as people want to hold up uh, the sanctity of human life, believing that God has ordained every life. So before we get into the scripture here and look at Jeremiah 1, let's go ahead and pray together, and then we'll read the Bible. Lord, we thank you for this Right to Life Sunday, for this opportunity to bring um, in front of your people uh, the truth of your word. Um, help us to understand it. I, I pray that you'd give uh, me wisdom and insight as I uh, try to teach from your word and that our people would uh, very carefully listen, they'd be discerning, and that your Holy Spirit would just be at work. And I, I pray that if there's anyone here, Lord, that has made this decision to abort a child in the past, God, that they would turn to you and ask for your forgiveness, knowing, God, that you can forgive any sin and you're willing to do that. Help them to repent, to turn from that, and, and Lord, to seize upon a biblical worldview because that's where true freedom is at when we follow and live in your commands. You told us, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New, to be holy because God is holy. So help us to do that as your church. Uh, we love you. We ask you to teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, both the scriptures and science testify to the truth, the fact that human life exists in the womb. If you have our app, there's sermon notes in the app, so you can open that up today. So both scriptures and science testify to the fact that human life exists in the womb. And we have to remember that Christians, for us, 
There's an obligation for us to speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. In fact, Proverbs chapter 31, verse 8 tells us this, to open your mouth for the people who cannot speak, for the rights of all the unfortunate. A child inside the womb in this situation where they're going to be terminated, they have no ability to defend themselves or to communicate. And us as the people of God should be the ones who communicate for them. You know, William Carey, the great missionary who went to India and spread the gospel in India in the 1700s, when he got to India, he just wanted to share Jesus. But he recognized that there was this horrible practice that the Indians there were doing called sati. And sati was this practice where if a man in that culture died, okay, they would take his wife who was living and burn her as well, and she would die on the funeral pyre with the man. William Carey saw this, and it outraged him. Now, listen, he was there to preach the gospel because the gospel is what saves people's souls, and it turns people to Christ, right, so that they can be saved. But when he saw this horrible practice, he knew that legislatively, he also had to get involved because that was wicked and it was evil. And as long as they were burning innocent people, those were, that was one less person that he could preach the gospel to. And so he wanted to make sure and get that practice outlawed, and eventually it was. So as Christians, we don't just herald the gospel, but we try to be world changers, right? We try to be people who influence and bring goodness and truth into the world. So we open our mouths for those who cannot open it for themselves. Many times the Bible speaks in the Old Testament of a place called the Hinnom Valley. The Hinnom Valley is infamous, and it was located at the western and southern edges of Jerusalem, and it was a place that was known for the horrible practice of child sacrifice in the Old Testament. Children were exposed there to the elements and left to die many times, but also other times they were sacrificed to false gods. In the Old Testament, it was often the site where the people of Judah sacrificed to the false god Baal, and they would sacrifice their children. 2 Kings chapter 23, 2 Chronicles chapter 28 and in the book of Jeremiah, at least three times, this horrible practice of child sacrifice is mentioned. And this morning, we're going to look at another passage out of Jeremiah chapter 1. And I think the reason why it's in Jeremiah chapter 1 is because child sacrifice took place in that culture. And when God speaks to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1, he's demonstrating that a child, not just a little bitty baby that's outside the womb, but even inside the womb is precious and valuable in the sight of of God. So it helps him to have a good worldview of what God is thinking and also for us today as well. The Hinnom Valley was filled with the screams of innocent children. And there was a horrible king there named Manasseh who reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. He was an idolater. He worshiped Baal. He worshiped Asherah. He worshiped the the host of heaven, the Bible tells us, but it also tells us that many of Manasseh's children were also sacrificed to these false gods in the Old Testament. And here's our passage of Scripture. Now, keep in mind, this is in a time when human life was devalued. It wasn't important. Children could be sacrificed at any moment. And God says this to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now, notice some key elements in this verse. 
Jeremiah was in the mind of God before he was even conceived. In other words, before the generating of this child or even the action of his parents, Jeremiah was in the mind of God. So this practice that's going on in the Hinnom Valley of these little children being offered to false gods, God says in Jeremiah 1, wait, 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 this is wicked, and he says it in some other places that it's wicked, but I'll tell you why it's wicked is that you were in my mind, Jeremiah, before you were in your mother's belly. God had a plan for Jeremiah. Number two, he was consecrated or set apart, this scripture tells us, for a special purpose. All people have purpose, function, and meaning before God and before physical birth, according to this scripture. Now, our culture today, it tells us, right, that we're just products of evolution. We're time and chance that's just acting on matter, and it's really headed nowhere. And if that's true, then I would say abort away. The problem is that that's not true. We're not time and chance acting on matter. The Bible tells us that there's a good God that actually has purpose and meaning and value for each one of us. We're not accidents in the cosmos, right? We are purposeful. The Lord had a plan for Jeremiah before he was born, and he had a plan for you as well. Number three, God's appointment of Jeremiah to the office of prophet. Before any human institution or person could recognize that Jeremiah was a prophet, that idea started in the mind of God, even before conception. Now, this is a fitting passage of Scripture demonstrating to the people of Judah when they heard Jeremiah's message that killing innocent human lives, babies, that God hates that and he loves and he has ordained every single life. Now, what we know from the scriptures is, if you read the book of Jeremiah, his message largely fell upon deaf ears, didn't it? But here's what happened. Because the people didn't turn, they didn't repent of their sins and turn to God, judgment came. You cannot just continue to murder innocent children in a culture and not expect that judgment eventually will come, will not come. It will come. In Jeremiah chapter 7, he warned Israel and he said, For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They've put their detestable things in the house which is called by my name to defile it. They've built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command. And it did not come into my mind. Isn't it interesting? Uh, you look and the opposite is said here as in Jeremiah 1. In Jeremiah 1 it says that that Jeremiah was in his mind before he began to exist. This practice of killing the innocent children was never in God's mind. It's the exact opposite of what we read earlier. Therefore, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. Jeremiah is referred to in church history as the weeping prophet. And if you know Anything about his books, especially the book of Lamentations that came a little bit later, you can see that that book chronicles the horrific judgment that came upon God's people for ignoring and not repenting of this sin. Now, interestingly enough, when we look at the New Testament and we look at Jesus, he talks about hell many times. Now, the Greek word for hell is Gehenna, which is the same translation, get this, 
for the Hinnom Valley. So when Jesus was trying to make a point about what hell was like, that was perpetually on fire, he talked about Gehenna, which was the Hinnom Valley where child sacrifice took place. You want to know what hell's like? It's like the Hinnom Valley, where people who are made in the image of God are destroyed. That's what hell is like. The Bible tells us in Psalm 139, verse 16, your eyes have seen my formless substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. We know there is life in the womb. Luke chapter 1, verse 15 tells us that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit even while in his mother's womb. The scriptures are clear, and there's many other passages, and we'll look at a few here in just a few moments. But know also that science also is compatible with the scriptures and what we know scientifically about children that are inside the womb. Through the use of ultrasounds, modern science can detect the waves of a baby's heartbeat as early as three weeks after fertilization. Although the child's organs have not yet fully formed, soon after this, the three-week mark, the heart starts to beat 105 to 122 times per minute. Now, most women don't even know that they're pregnant by three to five weeks, but I have, a, I have the sound of a five-week-old child's heartbeat. Five weeks. Let's go ahead and listen to that. Isn't that amazing? Now, the vast majority of abortions take place after this five-week mark. Sounds like life to me. Upon fertilization, listen carefully, the baby's DNA is separate from its mother's. The baby has a separate heartbeat from the mother at just three weeks. At just six weeks, the cerebral cortex is formed. At seven weeks, the baby is hiccuping and kicking. At 10 weeks, the baby has distinct fingerprints. The baby's awake when the mother is asleep. The baby can have a separate sex and blood type from its mother. It is its own person. Psalm 139, verse 14, I will give thanks to you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. Because of the work of Protestants and Catholics, to get ultrasound machines into the hands of Crisis Pregnancy Center and Pregnancy Resource Centers, countless human lives have been saved because of that research and those resources. Now, number two, part two of this message, and I'm gonna ask you a few questions here as we go along, and you just raise your hand if you've heard this argument used before. So part of the job of a Christian is to is to, to give answers to the culture whenever they ask us. You know, we want to be heralds of the gospel, but the Bible also tells us to be ready to give to every man an answer. Paul talks about that he was a defender of the gospel, and so we want to be good at understanding the issues and being able to speak truth and light into those issues. So here's common objections to the pro-life position. I just want to talk about a few of these, and this might be helpful. Now, I can't cover all of them today, but here's just a few. Tell me if you've heard this one. It's my body. It's not the mother's body. Science tells us that a baby in the womb is a separate person. 
If you were to properly follow the logic of this argument, it's my body. Since it is the baby's body actually being affected here in abortion and not the mother's, the preborn child should alone be able to choose whether or not he or she is aborted, not the mother. Bodily autonomy does not permit the killing of one human being solely because it is located inside of another. Although we all have a right to autonomy over our own bodies, bodily autonomy ends where another's body begins. And that's why I started with Proverbs chapter 31, is to speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves, right? This is not the mother's body, this is the baby's body. And so while they're not able to speak up for themselves, you and I as Christians can speak up for them. Number two, tell me if you've heard this. What about rape? Common objection. Should abortion be permissible if a rape has happened? Rape, obviously, is a horrible crime against a woman. It's tragic. It's traumatic. Women can live with those effects for the rest of their lives. It's wicked. But it is important to note that less than 1% of all abortions are due to this reason. That's number one. But number two, the question still is this. And here's the real question. Why should a child die for the sins of a father? Why should a child die for the sins of a father? The baby in the womb is still a person and has committed no crime. If a mother decided uh, to birth a baby from rape, when the child celebrated its one-year-old birthday, we would think it detestable if the mother killed that child because it reminded her of a rape. Why would it be different logically if the child was killed just a few months earlier while located in the womb? The best thing to do in that situation, if a mother cannot live with that outcome, is to give that child up for adoption. What about this, number three? Babies inside the womb aren't really people. They're not people yet. Now, we have to be careful here about who we decide people are and people aren't. We've made some pretty bad mistakes in the past. How many of you have ever read The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn? Uh, a bunch of you have read that book. It's a classic. I don't know if you happen to remember the part where Huck contrives a story to explain to Aunt Sally his late arrival by boat. But here's what was said back in 1884. And of course, black people were treated, right? Black men and women were treated horribly because of the practice of slavery. But here's what he said. This is why I'm late. We blowed out a cylinder head. Good gracious, was anybody hurt? No. Killed a... I'll let you fill in the blank, a horrible name used for a black person. Well, it's lucky because sometimes people do get hurt. You see, there was a worldview that black people weren't really people. And if one of them died, well, it's a good thing that one of them died because, you know, they're not actually a person. You see, when a culture dehumanizes a group, they can subjugate that group to anything they wish in its fertile ground, of course, for genocide. In the case of babies in the womb, infanticide. America is still paying for the sins of dehumanizing black men and women during slavery. What a horrible travesty. This is wicked and there's no excuses for it. Babies are people too. What about this? The embryo hasn't actually developed into a human yet. Not a human. 
This philosophical objection is famous right now. It's being used in universities. Your kids will be exposed to it, so it's important that they have apologetics and answers for these different kinds of questions. But uh, I got a question for you, people who are a little older in here. Actually, it's for everybody. Um, How many of you, keep your hands down if you don't know what it is, but how many of you in this room know what a Polaroid camera is? Okay. Some of you don't. I'm expecting a lot of you young people don't know what that is. Okay, so a Polaroid camera, you guys remember, you'd take a shot of something, right? And then, you know, the picture would come out of the front. And then if you wanted to develop fast, what'd you do? Oh, yeah, you used it like a fan, right? Well, imagine if you're on a safari with your family and all you had was like a Polaroid camera. You've got your kids next to you. They've never seen a Polaroid camera. And you're just snapping photos and handing them to the kids Kids look at them and just tear them up because they can't see the picture, right? And you're taking pictures and you're handing them these photos and they look at them and that one didn't work either. And you get back to your room later. It's your last day in Africa and you just had a safari and you said, hey, how did those pictures turn out? Well, none of them turned out. I just tore them up, right? Now, those images, were those images really there? Would you be upset? Of, Of course you would, right? They're developing images, but they are images. And I want you to think about a baby in a womb, right? It is developing, it is a developing image of God, but it is an image. And like those pictures that were destroyed and made you really mad, guess what? It should make you really upset that those babies inside the womb are being destroyed as well. They are developing images of God. Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25, uh, considers the child in the womb to be life. In fact, it says that if two men are fighting, this is in the law, if men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined, whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But, listen to this, if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life. That woman, if that child in that womb is damaged or, or killed, life for life. Here's another common objection. Have you heard this one? Laws can't stop all abortions. Can't stop them all. You know what else it can't stop? All murders, all rape, all speeders. Got any speeders in the room? Okay. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Like laws don't stop all crime, but laws are there because there are crimes committed. They do stop a lot of crime. Many argue that for the sake of science, we should destroy embryos in order to treat diseases. And anyone against embryonic stem cell research is anti-science. Have you heard that objection? Interestingly enough, in his book, The Case for Life, Scott Klusendorf points out that adult stem cells are currently treating over 75 known diseases while embryonic cells are presently treating None. Why choose something that is lethal for tiny humans instead of non-lethal for adults? What is it with this obsession of, of killing the young? It's, it's a very strange thing where the father of lies twists things and turns it and legalizes things that destroy us in our relationship with God. Now, we could go on and on with those, but as Christians then, what should we do as believers? What specifically is our calling as Christians? How should we approach 
these issues. And I think being biblically sound, understanding the word of God, understanding some of this science as well can help us to speak truth into the world. But also, I have a few things that we can do as believers that help. Number one is we can support. We can educate through organizations like Hand in Hand Pregnancy Center. Now, this week, Daniel and I, during our podcast, really excited because we're going to have Tiffany DeLapp there. And she's, uh, she's very, um, she holds, a, I can't remember her exact um, title, but she works at Hand in Hand Pregnancy Center. And she's going to be sharing a little bit about her story, which is awesome. You're going to want to hear it this week on the podcast. It'll be a little bit of a longer one. But we need to support organizations like that because Tiffany then has conversations with young women who are in these situations where they have unwanted pregnancies, and she's able to point them to alternatives other than abortions. We want to support organizations like that. We want to empower them as Christians to have those conversations with women in difficult situations to carry those, child, those children. Number two, we want to be people who adopt. We need to have a heart for orphans. James chapter one tells us that that is pure religion, is to look after orphans and widows in their need. And so we want to definitely do that. And, uh, you know, I thank God all the time that there were two women, one I've never met in Novosibirsk, Siberia, that carried my son Noah for nine months so that he could be born, and one lady in Ethiopia, who I'll never meet probably, I hope to someday, who carried my little son, Nati, and carried them for nine months and chose life so that those children could be in my home. And by God's grace, both of those kids have come to faith in the gospel. We need to be people who adopt. Number three, we need to vote. We need to vote for legislators and leaders that share our views. Remember William Carey, who's over in India. He's there to preach the gospel, but he wants to be light to the culture. We need to vote for people who will vote, who will actually help, uh, help us to protect image bearers in the womb. Vote morality before money. Number four, preach the gospel of grace and forgiveness to those who have made the mistake of abortion. Help them to process, to tell their stories, to bring glory to God and healing to their hearts. And that's one of the most beautiful things about Tiffany's testimony. I don't want to steal any of her thunder, but it's really amazing how the Lord, because of a mistake she made years ago, has used her to touch so many lives and probably prevent so many abortions and use her testimony to touch people with the gospel. So we want to empower those people, but also preach the gospel of grace to people who have made mistakes in the past. The Apostle Paul tells us this, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. People who have committed this sin, turn to him in faith, can be fully forgiven. At the beginning of the message, I, I mentioned King Manasseh, who for 55 years uh, was, you know, it was a reign of terror in Israel. All these children being killed and aborted in the Hinnom Valley, but interestingly enough, at the end of his life, in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, the Bible tells us this, that the wicked king Manasseh repented and turned to God. Isn't that awesome? And that's our Lord who is, who is you know, he's slow to anger, the Bible tells us, and great in mercy. So don't think if you've made that mistake or if you've thought about doing uh, that particular sin, whatever it is, 
Today we're talking about abortion, but whatever it is, that God wouldn't look down on you in mercy and grace and you receive the gospel. He wants to have a relationship with you. Now, before I end this, I want to make sure that you understand this isn't a political message, right? This is part of the Glad You Ask series. It's something that all of our church needs to know. But I also want to tell you that because the culture is pressing in today so hard on the church, many times that even young people who grow up in the church, they hear the stories, they read their Bibles. You guys as parents might be home and and you love God. You still, many times, people aren't equipped to understand the Scriptures well enough to make good godly decisions. Um, And I read this article, and it's from June 21st of 2018, from Focus on the Family. I want you to listen carefully to this, okay? So this is why we talk about this stuff in church. Quote, many women with unplanned pregnancies go silently from the church pew to the abortion clinic, convinced the church would gossip rather than help. A 2015 study shows more than four in 10 women who have had an abortion were churchgoers when they ended a pregnancy. Did you hear that? More than four in 10 were in the church. Researchers found in a survey sponsored by CareNet, a nonprofit organization supporting more than 1,100 pregnancy centers, that this is true in America. That's a huge opportunity for the church to have an impact on those decisions, said Scott McConnell, vice president of LifeWay Research. We talk about it because our young people need to know that there's never a situation where a child should be terminated in the womb but carried because we are pro-life because God is pro-life. We don't want them living with the guilt and the shame and the anxiety, and the fear, and all the stuff that comes with that pain and suffering later, even in their lives. Four in 10. Listen to this. Only 7% of women discuss their abortion decision with anyone at the church. And three-fourths, 76% say the church had no influence on their decision to terminate a pregnancy. We have to be clear about this. In our families, And with God's people, it's our responsibility as shepherds to talk about it. It's a hard issue. It stinks. It's a hot button in our culture. I know a lot of people want to twist it and make it political, but actually God is totally pro-life. He's for the family. He's for children. And so all of us need to understand that. Now, we want you to know, friends, that you don't have to hide your sin. We're all sinners. The pastors are sinners. We're messed up people who just have Jesus. If you're in a tough spot, you need counseling from a past mistake, maybe you've had an abortion, we can help. If you're considering having one, please come and talk to one of our staff or reach out to Hand in Hand. I know there's people there that would love to talk to you about your situation. We love you and we plead with you not to make that mistake, but instead to walk in holiness. You know, Jesus calls us to that. It's not just an Old Testament idea. First Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says, be holy because God is holy. He has an expectation for all of his people that we try to walk in righteousness and in holiness and walk with him. Remember this, God is a forgiving God who is seeking a relationship with you through Jesus. He isn't waiting with a hammer to bang you over the head because you made a mistake. Jeremiah chapter one, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. 
And I started this message off, and I told a story about a lady in Southern California. She had three kids, one on the way. The question is, what would she do with her decision? Her husband was encouraging her, just go have an abortion. It's legal now. It's been legal for three years. We know people who have done it. Just go take care of it. We cannot afford this new child. There's no way. Well, I'm happy to tell you today that that decision 44 years ago, the mom said, no, I'm gonna have this child. And that child was me. It was me. My mom chose life. And I thank God for that decision. Absolutely, they were in a financial pinch. Absolutely, you could point to all of these things to to make a case that she should have aborted me. We as Christians should always choose life. God will provide a way. We need to encourage our world to do that. Y'all stand up and pray with me. Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you for your word that it's clear. We also want to thank you that you wired science into this world so that we can see again that it's clear. But we also know, God, that the human mind can rationalize anything. And like John Calvin said, the human human heart is like an idol-making factory. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to stand on biblical authority with this important issue in our day, that we would speak truth into the world. Passionately, we would speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. And also, Lord Jesus, to love those who have made this this decision to abort, to to let them know that there's grace, mercy, and forgiveness in the gospel and that we're all seeking the same thing and that is forgiveness from a savior like Jesus. We thank you for him. And Father, as we go today, uh, again, we, we pray for this country. We lift it up to you, this nation. We pray that you would forgive us, God, for this horrible scourge of abortion that takes place in our land. And Lord Jesus, you would help us to walk out of here, lights of the gospel to this world, standing firm, always on your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.